Welcome to Popaganda, where we invite you to come for the pop culture and stay for the abolition. I'm Shannon Perez-Darby with my co-host, Tajmika Torak, and this week's episode, Copaganda. That's going to be the thing for us. I'm going to need to get better at remembering the names of things. <laughs> that's why I made the list because I was like, Brooklyn 911. I was like, that's not the name. Reno 911, Brooklyn 99. But I had to Google it so that I'm not, while I'm saying it, wait, is that right? That's kind of right. Also, I didn't do this entirely on purpose, but I am wearing a shirt that is very like appropriate for our moment. This was uh, someone, a local artist made during the uprisings. And it says, this is a policy proposal and it's a Seattle police vehicle on fire. I just happened to put it on this morning. I was like, oh, it's perfect. I love that shirt. I I really do. I love that shirt. I have a tank top. I'm not wearing it right now. I'm wearing a shirt that just says, this Black woman is making history. The gift from uh, the local women's center gave it to me while I was out tabling a couple weeks ago. So it's very lovely. I have this other shirt that I often wear. I actually need to reorder it because I've worn it so much. The image is fading, but it's a image of a black woman punching a cop in the face during the civil rights movement. And I love recording TikToks in it because usually I'm cooking. You know, I have another shirt that says FYPD. Um, that's very confusing to my friends sometimes because it looks like I'm wearing a police department shirt. And it says, fuck your police department on the bottom, but it looks like a cop's emblem. My son actually tells me I'm not allowed to wear it in public because he's worried about me. This is an exact problem I've had that I forgot about until this moment, which is that there was like a period of time where I was deep in the Doctor Who fandom. But you know, the TARDIS, the like spaceship that the doctor goes around in is a police box. Mm -hmm. And so I was wearing a hoodie that had the police box emblem on it where it says like police to do, 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 do. And multiple friends thought I was wearing some like police branded hoodie. And I was like, oh, no, it's Doctor Who. There aren't even police boxes anymore. It's actually like a whole callback. It was like that thing where multiple people were very confused about what was happening. That is definitely what that shirt does to people. And especially like my really good friends who they are very familiar with my personal opinions and frameworks that they I'll be wearing that shirt. And they're like, what does your shirt say? But I love making TikToks and then because it's a message while also I'm, you know, happy to making like an aloe rose face spritzer, whatever, whatever I'm actually filming. I love wearing that t-shirt with that black woman punching a cop in the face. So feels very appropriate to our theme today of copaganda. Shannon Perez Darby, what do you think about copaganda? What is copaganda first and foremost? You know, I think about copaganda as the ways in which pop culture and media tell us to love cops, tell us that cops are people that are protecting us or supposed to protect us. I think about copaganda as telling children, if you need help, go to a police officer. I think about copaganda as all the ways that tell us that police are the answers to our problems. And that gets deeply embedded in movies, TV, media. I think about copaganda as the thing that tells us that cops have our back. And it's propaganda because it's a lie, because it's a selling us on something like political propaganda might on an idea that is not aligned with many of our realities. You know, I think that that is a really accurate description of what copaganda is. What I'll offer as an answer is just sort of my lived experience of copaganda as someone who's an abolitionist and who has been actively working in community to limit funding to the police and things like that. Uh, through city government budgets. I'll never forget that after George Floyd was murdered and after we were working to try to decrease the law enforcement's budget in our city and redirect some of those funds towards mental health support and, and other services, we have a huge issue, like many communities of people not being able to find affordable housing. So we had all these things that maybe we could use that money for, right? In that moment, I'm going into my neighborhood grocery store and the police are set up with a table accepting food donations for the food bank, some service around food. And I remember thinking if maybe perhaps you weren't buying, you know, militarized weaponry, you could probably afford 
to just provide food to the community. And of course, the rest of the community is witnessing this as a service. Of course, not everybody, but like, oh, how nice that the cops are spending their time to collect food for people who are facing food instability. And I'm watching it and I'm thinking, this is propaganda. This is exactly what we talk about because law enforcement is the same institution that will tell us that they need millions and millions of dollars so that they can get rapists and murderers off the street. But somehow during this time where we're trying to restrict funding to them, they also have time to support the food bank and stand outside the grocery store in my neighborhood that is primarily Black and present themselves as a solution to other problems when they can't even respond to mental health crisis without murdering people. That is how I think about propaganda in real time. There are many, many examples of that, but that is one that feels very present because it was my grocery store in my community where just less than a mile away, they violently assaulted a Black man during an arrest. Yeah, that's how I think about propaganda. And I also think about it in terms of the police unions having a hand in the the creation of the way that TV and film talks about them. Because that's the other piece is that they are actively involved with the storytelling that we ingest about policing in the United States. So it's not just this idea that propaganda exists. It's actually a thing that they function within and create and push forward within the Hollywood film TV industry. Uh, that's Jenny, but that's not Jenny's dad. If she gets into that car, that may be the last time you'll see Jenny. I'm McGruff, the crime dog. See those kids? Every day in this country, 60 kids disappear. Some run away, but a lot are kidnapped by strangers or even by people they know. So write to McGruff and teach your kids to protect themselves. Help uh, take a bite out of crime. My first memory of propaganda is McGruff, the crime dog, and that a lot of the TV I watched as a kid had little, you know, 30 second or just little mini sort of segments before and after with McGruff telling you, oh, report crimes, McGruff is here to help you. And that's such a distinct memory to me as a cartoon character, all the other cartoons telling me that McGruff was going to take care of me and that I should participate in reporting on crimes, I guess, as a child, and how deeply built in that was to my late 80s, early 90s childhood was, was these images of McGruff. You know, I, I remember McGruff, and I, I don't know if it's because I grew up in a military community. So I grew up in El Paso, Texas. It is the home of a military base, Fort Bliss. And it's also right across the border from Juarez, Mexico. Part of the reason why I don't necessarily have an early memory of engaging with law enforcement is because of how diverse, specifically Black and Brown, the community I grew up in was. I remember La Migra. Most of my relationship to law enforcement in my youth was avoiding them and trying to subvert. Obviously, I was a teenager. You know what I mean? So there was also that, right? So for me, I never really felt a sense of safety around law enforcement. I think the other thing that is the reason I don't really think of like McGruff or like have those experiences is because I am a brown skin. Some might call him Biggie Brown, depending on where you are in the world. Like people will look at me, especially in that community that had all kinds of people from all around the world and weren't quite sure what my identity was, what language I spoke, where I came from. One thing that was pretty consistent is that as a young girl, I was always tokenized, always sexualized. And so even with law enforcement, right, like I was flirted with or I was treated better because I had pretty privilege or, you know what I mean? Like there, there's always been an association with law enforcement and men and power over my body different than I think other people maybe have experienced law enforcement in their community. And so they just never felt safe because of that. 
I don't think I've ever associated law enforcement with safety because I think everybody in the community, not everybody, of course, my experience, my people that I grew up with were not about the police in the way that some communities are. Yeah. There were two things that politicized me early. The first being the amount of sexual violence me and my peers experienced at very young ages. I had a strong sense that was not what should be happening and that the adults did not seem to care and we needed to make a plan about that. And then the second was that as a teenager, just our experiences as teenagers was somehow wrong or like that the police should be involved and the disconnect between the story that was told in the public and then my experience of the police. And that is as someone who is light-skinned, who's white passing, who hung out with lots of white and light-skinned Latinos growing up in the Southwest. It was my, maybe my 13th birthday. I was a, I was an indoor kid who did not want to get in trouble. So I was just always trying to do things to be right, look right, be good. I had some friends over to my mom's house. We lived close to an elementary school. It was like eight o'clock at night. And we walked to the elementary school and swung on the swings. And uh, was one of the neighbors called the police on us. Four or five police officers, multiple cop cars came and put us all up against a wall. Everyone was very afraid. We were literally 13-year-olds playing on the swings. And that the intense police response and then the feeling of being like, this team is not right. Some of my early experiences of being like, they are not my friends and they're actually coming for us doing just the most childlike thing. As the greater community started to have conversations about defunding the police, about abolition after George Floyd's murder, I don't know why I was surprised, but I honestly wasn't aware that people called the police like that all the time. I was like, wait. Wait, you call the police when there's noise in your neighborhood? Wait, you call the police when, you know, like someone's dog gets out? Like people call the police for stuff that I just would never fathom calling the police for. And growing up, I do have memories because of the way I was raised. My dad uh, is a Black man who grew up in the South and then went up into New York like many other Black families and then joined the military. But he has always had this sort of like expectation of us as children and me in particular that I was not allowed to use Ebonics. I was not allowed to speak in a way that indicated Blackness. My dad would quiz me on spelling. It was abusive, first of all. Like There were things that happened that should not have happened that were very much about respectability politics and a lot of pressure for a child who is just entering the world to have to carry, to have to navigate his fears and expectations that were created not by my father, but was created by white supremacy. And he was just trying to make sure I could survive. But the outcome was that I was harmed. Because of that and because of the way that I knew how to present myself, I was often sent by my friends to talk to the police that came to raid the party. So I would be the one sent outside to be like, oh, hey, hey, yeah, we're just having a little get together. I I will tell everyone to quiet down. Okay, don't worry. Um, No, no, of course, there's no drugs here. Of course not. Absolutely not. In community, my job was to be the liaison between (laughs) this group of teenagers having a party where gang members might be, where drugs might be, where alcohol might be. And my job was very much to be the face of the, the group of children. And so while you, I love how you were like, I was trying to be good because immediately I was like, I was a high achieving lying ass liar because I too also did not. (laughs) I did not want to get in trouble and I wanted the adults to think I was good. So I absolutely got good grades. I was a cheerleader. I was, uh, I was in choir. Shannon, I got the Matador Award because if anybody was talking about Jesus, it was me. Okay. I was a very good kid. I was also at ditch parties regularly in Wada's drinking my face off as a 14 year old. Okay. So like, and no one knew, like, obviously my friends knew, but like the adults 
were unawares that I was able to drink all day and then get to cheerleading practice at 3.30 and then come home and do my homework. You know what I mean? What are some examples of propaganda and pop culture that you've watched? Yeah, you know, if there were two pop-based shows that I would say that I liked, it was Reno 911. I love a satirical show. I love dark comedy with a lot of commentary built into the comedy, which I really think Reno 911 was. And then also Brooklyn Nine-Nine. I've gone very heavy on the comedy-based cop shows. I've been talking about it constantly because it's one of my favorite pieces of recent pop culture is the All Cops Are Bastards TikTok that is talking Mm -hmm. about copaganda. The person's just repeating All Cops Are Bastards over and over again, showing different pieces of copaganda. The pieces of like, yeah, of course we hate that kind of copaganda. But then you get to Law and Order SVU. Mm-hmm. which even many people who might have strong critiques of propaganda might have a deep love for mm-hmm. uh, Olivia Benson. I would say propaganda pop shows are not my go-to. Mm-hmm. And I absolutely have cop shows that I have watched all of and love deeply. And so I'd say probably those three, Law & Order SVU, Reno 911, and then Brooklyn Nine-Nine are the, the ones I love. You know, I'm going to take it all the way back because I know in our last episode, we we're like, where did your love of pop culture start? And so when I think about propaganda. Before I knew what propaganda was, that's a relatively new understanding for me. Before I could ever even form opinions about these things. Again, Lifetime TV came in clutch with Unsolved Mysteries. We used to watch that all the time. That and um, America's Most Wanted is another one that I was super invested in that we used to watch all the time. Those are like the first pop culture references that I can think of where the community was in collaboration with law enforcement to discover the truth of how this person was murdered or hurt or kidnapped or all these things. These are things that happened in the wider country, right? Like America's Most Wanted. It wasn't like Crime Stoppers where it's like this guy robbed a convenience store around the corner. It's like a national thing. Oh, and Cops. That would be the other show that we used to watch growing up. I'll never forget when cops did an episode about El Paso, Texas, you know, because they always show the whole city. They do the whole thing. And I was like, I cannot believe that I'm watching cops in my hometown. But yeah, I would say those are the first ones that got my sort of true crime curiosity started before I got to adulthood in. can't believe I forgot about the show Cops. I think I lean towards the like comedy and reality television version of Copaganda. And the reason that I was so drawn in by Cops is that it had that reality television energy to it. Especially my kid brain when I was watching it, it felt reality television. It felt like, oh, like something performative is happening on the television in this reality television genre. And I wasn't connecting it to the experience of policing, of actual police officers actually criminalizing folks. It was so detached to me and it felt like reality television, how uh, reality dating is the approximation of dating, but it's not dating. That's the feeling I had about the show Cops. Even though those are real police officers doing policing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no. And I do feel like I 
Uh, it does feel like dipping in. If you're a kind of person who enjoys reality TV, it does feel like that voyeuristic where you get a drop in the bucket of someone's experience and then there is no follow-up, right? And it's not at all the same in terms of the lightheartedness of what's happening uh, in other reality shows, but it does match the sort of exploitative ways that reality TV, you know, there's shows like Hoarders, there's shows like My 600 Pound Life that are very exploitative. I feel like Cops is very is very much aligned with that brand of reality TV consumption. We are watching someone who is in acute crisis, whether it's a mental health crisis, drug addiction, violence, runs the gamut. These folks are in acute crisis and we never get to see uh, because it's copaganda, there is no context provided about the before of our experience of watching these folks or the after. And there's no critique of how law enforcement is engaging. Like there's no follow-up where the the police oversight commission is like, actually, the way that this could have gone down is this different way. Or any of these sort of community-based crisis intervention that doesn't center police, we don't get to see that. As a reality TV show, it really does teach people that this is how this is supposed to happen and sort of primes people for their experience of law enforcement as the the decision maker and how we stay safe. And this is it. We call the police and they get this person and they arrest them and they take them to jail. And we get to all have a laugh about their the way that they're their drug addiction is showing up, the way that they are lying. Oh, look at this silly criminal. There's very, very clear examples within those interactions of messaging that we're supposed to accept as citizens about the way that we are allowed to be treated by law enforcement. Yeah, I um, I really resonate with the piece where you don't get to see the consequence in those shows. So you don't get to see the crushing nature of criminalization on even that individual, let alone the entire community. You know, it's zoomed specifically in on the moment of time of did a quote unquote crime occur? And it is totally pulled out of context to the impacts of, of policing on communities or just what it is to deal with the rest of criminalization um, outside of the specific part of policing, so of prosecution, of uh, monitoring by the courts, of the ways in which that messes with someone's life, that part I don't see in propaganda. So even in Law and Order, where it does sort of follow you through a, a larger trajectory of criminalization, so they'll like from the police to prosecution to a trial is often the shape of the Law and Order episodes. It's from the propaganda place, right, where it's saying you know justice is served, or even if justice is not served in those episodes, that's seen as a problem, um, mm-hmm. that's seen as a blip that the that the good police and the good prosecutors are going to fix. The reason I became an abolitionist is that in my work advocating with and uh, for survivors of domestic violence, Mm -hmm. I kept seeing over and over again that the idea that so many survivors had about what being involved in the criminal legal system as a survivor, as a person who had experienced violence, was Mm -hmm. that that story was fundamentally different than what was happening for every single survivor Mm -hmm. I supported. Mm And it started to become a very um, predictable trajectory where Mm -hmm. folks would come and say like, okay, I want to report, you know, Mm -hmm. I want to call the cops. I don't want this to happen to anyone else. I want justice to be served. And for the people who did choose to go through some kind of, you know, to call the cops, to report, to engage the criminal legal system over and over and over again, what I saw was that they learned that that story that they had, that like they would report and then, you know, their experience would be seen and then justice would be served, just kept not happening. And then people were dealing with the the crushing piece around the story that we were told that this was what was going to help you. Didn't help. It actually made their lives harder. It made it more crushing. And having to sit with many survivors through that crushing reality of what we were told in propaganda was going to happen and then what actually happened just added to the pain that so many survivors were experiencing while they were trying to 
get their needs met. That is one of the problems with propaganda. There are many. Um, and I think that's what I'd like to talk about next is like, what are some of the problems that we witness in propaganda and why? What is the impact of this propaganda on both people who are experiencing harm? Well, really, people who are experiencing harm, people are trying to respond to harm and the people who are causing harm. And for me, one of the main issues is what you're saying is that for survivors in particular, looking for Olivia Benson and Olivia Benson, while there are law enforcement people that I would say are definitely attempting to emulate that energy, they are still working within a container that does not allow for Olivia Benson to actually exist in real time. <laughs> and so one of the major problems of propaganda is that people come into it with the expectation that they are going to be held in a um, specific way across a very short timeline and have an outcome that matches their idea of justice. My experience matches yours. And typically when I'm working with a survivor, one of the first things that I say to them, whether I'm working with a school institution or it's, you know, wherever the violence happened and we're approaching an institutional response is that what you, what you imagine as being justice, I want you to be prepared to, to not get that. And I know that that's a really challenging thing to hear from me. Because I too want you to have the justice that you imagine. And I understand that the way that you've witnessed justice in both pop culture and your and the ways that we talk about it culturally is that you can call the police, the police will respond, you go to court, you get justice. And this person goes to prison because they are a criminal and that is what keeps you safe is not actually what is going to happen. There may be components of this that matches your understanding or your hopes. But by and large, that is not going to be your experience. And I'm so sorry, but we need to start prepping for the reality of entering the system, which also means that we're talking them through really how the community-based response with less resources is going to try to hold you through the criminal legal response that is going to do more harm along the way. Yeah, I, I care deeply about when the story that we're telling about something is different than the reality, that most of the things that really energize me and fire me up are when there is a disconnect between those things, than what's happening on the surface and what's happening behind the scenes. And for me, propaganda is such a central part of that, because the story we are telling is in almost no way related to the reality of every person I know, every person I'm in relationship with. So I can't speak to if someone somewhere has had, especially the survivor story that propaganda tells us is possible, but I have not seen it. I have not been in deep relationship with someone who's been like, I engaged with the criminal legal system. It went how I thought. I got my needs met. I was well cared for and I'm happy I did it. I would do it again. I have not heard that story. And I especially have not heard that story abundantly in repeat. And so I'm I'm always curious when the story we're telling about something is different than people's lived experience. Particularly when I think about how we talk about survivors and the experience of survivors, part of the reason that propaganda is so insidious is that it actually keeps us from resourcing what does actually work, which is community support, when you have a place to live that is safe and stable, when you have a way to pay your bills, when you have a way to make sure you and your children's needs are met, when you have childcare, when you have disposable income, that makes safer conditions for people. It makes more choice. It makes more things that are more possible. And that is actually part of the conditions we need. And when I tell people that that is actually part of how we're going to make a world where domestic and sexual violence is rare, is unthinkable. They act like I'm asking for something absurd, that mm -hmm. like stable housing and like affordable housing is a survivor issue 
people are just like, well, that's ridiculous. Do you just need one more position at the domestic violence shelter? And I'm like, no, don't. That is part of the reason I care about copaganda is it keeps us from telling the story and from resourcing what is actually needed because we're stuck in the imagination. People want to outsource the solutions to violence. It's so much easier if we think, oh, will you call the people over there and then they handle it? People are so soothed by the idea that someone somewhere is taking care of it. And it would be amazing if it were true that there were values aligned people who we could call, who would come keep us safe, who would take care of when hard things happened. That is a very compelling imagination. And in some ways, like, yes, I would also be soothed if that was actually true. But that is not true. That's not what's happening. And the imagination of that is preventing us from doing what is actually needed, what's actually resourced, which is why I care deeply about what propaganda is doing to our community. I love that. Before you got to the imagination part, that's what I was thinking about. I was thinking about how it limits our imagination. I was actually talking to my sister about this. I was telling her about this project and we were talking about horror films because I also think that horror films are great examples of community-based interventions. As I'm saying this to her, I'm like, yeah, because typically you call the cops and then the cop gets shot or murdered or harmed by the serial killer, bad guy, boogeyman. And then you end up having to save the cop too. And she's like, yeah, or alternatively, like in the movie Scream, you call the cop and you find out it is the cop that's doing, that's actually doing the harm, which is also true in our lived experience that cops are also the ones that are causing the sexual violence. That's the second most reported act of police violence is sexual violence. And it's usually enacted against BIPOC women who are also already survivors are usually calling in, but because of their vulnerability, uh, the ways that they're made vulnerable by uh, multiple systems, they're the ones who end up getting hurt by the police too. On top of that, if our imagination is limited, then not only are we not able to be creative in the face of violence and use a, a lot of strategies to respond, we are also less likely to be aware of when we are. And so I think that the community releases the sort of respect that they deserve, the celebration that they deserve for intervening on acts of violence because the cops come in after being called and they're like, we've got it, we handled it. And they never mention that it was the shop owner that provided them with the recording of the crime. They never mentioned that it was the mother who was able to go over and do the thing because they legally can't because technically what happened was not a crime. So they never really give the community credit outside of that. You know, you always get someone gets a award for calling the cops quickly. There's like these moments where people are awarded for their quick response time. But we don't have a conversation about how the community locates a missing child before the 24 hours is up or even after. I want the community to get that credit, too. They're working hard and the police are just coming in and being like, got it, got it, got it. Thank you for all this information that we would have never had or found or been given by the community because we haven't built enough trust to get it. We don't deserve it. We haven't earned it. But we're just going to go ahead and mention in these statistics that we're the ones who did this thing. And that, just like you said, like you are fired up by stories that are being told that aren't true. Yes, same. And I'm also annoyed that my community is not getting credit for the labor that they're doing in all of these federal statistics and programs and funding. Because honestly, you need to be funding this neighborhood association, this grandma on the corner who's paying attention to the kids and what's happening. Let's put some money in their pocket because they're the ones actually doing the labor. I don't like to use the language of surveillance because I don't want surveillance. And also when you are paying attention to what's happening in your community and have the relationships you need to get the information to keep people safe, that's the people in the community doing that work. And if the police have it, it's because we have chosen to give them access to that information. The person in my neighborhood that makes me feel the safest is my neighbor, Miss Ruth. And so Miss Ruth is 90 years old. She's lived in this neighborhood for 40, maybe it's 50 years now. 
She knows everybody's name. When we moved in 11 years ago, she immediately called us over, introduced herself to us, told us how we should be in relationship with her, told us about the neighborhood, asked us about ourselves, got our phone numbers, gave us her phone number. That was like our introduction to the neighborhood. She knows everybody. She is tracking what's happening. We had a new house sitter uh, watching our dogs. And uh, our house sitter told us Miss Ruth called her over and, and double checked who she was and that she was in our house. And so Miss Ruth, she's home. She's paying attention to the neighborhood. You know, there's lots of neighborhood kids around. She's talking to them. Uh, we were just joking the other day. There was like a, a beef that was playing out amongst the neighborhood kids. And so I was just I was keeping my eye on it. Miss Ruth was across the street, keeping her eye on it. One of the kids was like carrying a stick and looked upset. Um, so, you know, of course she called him over and I could not hear what she was saying. And I did notice that by the end, he put the stick down and walked back towards his house. I want Miss Ruth to have the credit for keeping our neighborhood safe. It is not police that are doing that. It is Miss Ruth who's paying attention, who's in her yard, who's tracking, who knows everybody's names, who also talks to people directly about their behavior. And like, she's very clear about what is the right way to act in the neighborhood. And she will tell you if you are acting outside that practice and let you know how to get in right relationship with her. And yeah, she should get the credit. Absolutely. Yeah, we have a neighbor like that too. Her name is Nancy. And when we moved in, I was five months pregnant with our middle child. And immediately upon moving in, she had printed off where all the sex offenders live. <laughs> and gave me a packet as a mother. We love it. Nancy is like this little tiny white lady grandma who used to be a private investigator. So she has all of these strategies around safety. She keeps a Michigan State Police hat, a man's hat hanging on her hook by her front door. She has all these sort of community-based strategies that she's come up with in relation to staying safe, keeping other people safe that we've always appreciated. And she does the same thing. She keeps an eye on our kids. Sometimes I lose my kids over there. Like they'll go to walk Nancy's dog. She's getting older and she has a retriever, a big dog. So my middle child walks her dog like every couple of days. Our kids go over, you know, they just go over. And so I'll be like, wait, where's Isaiah? Like, where's my child? And he'll come back. He's like, oh yeah, I was talking to Nancy. I've just been talking to her for like an hour. We were just hanging out. This is who she is. And then our other neighbor is a similar vibe. She used to work at a prison, <laughs> but same thing. Someone was watching her pets and they lost the key. So they were climbing in our window, which was totally fine. We would have been like, yeah, that's fine. But um, our neighbor was like, excuse me. And again, these are both women who are not physically intimidating in the way that you expect police to be, but are totally comfortable stepping in and being like, excuse me, why are you climbing into my neighbor's window? And then of course they explained and, you know, everything was fine, but they are watching, they are attentive and they are comfortable intervening on things that they don't think are okay. And they don't feel the need to call the police. They call us, right? They're like, Hey, just want to check in. And I think that's beautiful. And they don't get credit. They don't get credit for that. And they, and they absolutely should. I'm also thinking about other first responders. So one of the things that happens is that sometimes we group all first responders into one group. So we group paramedics and firefighters and cops all as this first responder category. And I will say in my own life, I have had dramatically different experiences with police than I have with firefighters and uh, paramedics. And I actually had very caring relationships with firefighters and paramedics where, you know, I had a health crisis once and the paramedics who showed up cared for me well, asked me what I needed, got me the resource that was right for me. My mom had a situation where uh, she was choking on a pill and almost died. And she talks about how the firefighter was the person who did the task that I would imagine I would want in the imagination of what cops would do. It was the firefighter who did that. He came in, he handled the situation. He looked at her, he calmed her down. He said, okay, it's you and me, we're in this and I got you. And then made the strategy to make sure she had what she needed. I think that is a valuable role. That in crisis, having skilled, resourced, trained people who have special skills, who can come and support us when we need those kinds of special skills, like, I want that for us. I want that outside the consequences and the inherently racist nature of policing and criminalization, and that we have flattened those things all into one package. 
that there were people with particular medical skills or crisis handling skills who can help handle a crisis in a values-aligned way that isn't crushing communities. In my imagination of the world, I would love for that to exist. And in my own reality, I have had that experience with other kinds of first responders where I have gotten care. They pop in for a moment. There's no ongoing thing that, that happens afterwards. I got the care I needed and the end. I can see there could be a path for that, right? But we have to bring to, into the light the crushing na- nature of criminalization to actually detach those things. Yeah. And, you know, I have to say in full transparency, I've also had those experiences with law enforcement where I have a cop. It's like they say, like men, like a man, sure. All men, absolutely not. So like a cop, I still can't say yes, but like a cop that I have had a good experience with. Okay. All cops, bastards. Got it. You know what I mean? It kind of feels the same thing. And I've had experiences with law enforcement where they do show up in a way. And typically it's a law enforcement officer who has a social work background. It's not because they're a cop that they're able to show up in that way. It's because they have other layers of experience, whether lived or professional, that has moved them towards being more in alignment with understanding that there is more context when a crime happens and that crime is a construct and all of these things. So they're able to show up in a better way, but not always. And again, just like I said earlier, they're still operating within a container that is very limiting to what they are actually able to do. And oftentimes they're being subversive to that container and have the wherewithal to be strategic, to use community-based organizations to do things they cannot do. But the thing that is also upsetting about that, just like we're talking about people in community not getting credit the, the problem with that is that we don't also still get the budget. So even when law enforcement is doing the thing that we would imagine that we would want them to do, they're still leveraging community and not sharing resources. And so I'm still not getting paid anymore to do those things. I'm still like, I'm not better resourced to provide those things to law enforcement. They're not, you know, we're not a consultant the expectation is because we're a nonprofit, they can just come and and use us to do the thing that they either don't have the imagination, the bravery, the freedom to do within their own, under the umbrella of their own institution. Yeah. How well do you know your neighbors? You see many of them every day, but have you ever wondered what goes on behind their doors? Are you associated with the deceased? No, no, we're neighbors in the building. Mm -hmm. So you don't know him? Just in passing. Not his passing. No, yes, when we passed by him. Before he passed. That's right. We find the right connection, and all this cracks open. I can't tell if I want it to be nothing or for it to be something. We began with the question, how well do you know your neighbors? Turns out the ones you thought you knew best might be the ones you know the least. One of the pieces of uh, cultural propaganda I struggle with the most are police dogs. We are a family that is really big on dogs and love dogs so much. I uh, worked for an elected official many years ago, and there was a friends and family day at City Hall. And so my partner came and brought kids that he was caring for. And there was a police officer with a police dog. The thing is, That was the most fun thing happening because there's a dog you get to hang out with. And we were sort of just chatting about the tension of being like, we're so excited there's a dog here. Also, the presence of the dog at the family day from the police is propaganda. All the children were surrounding the police officer and the dog. And then that situation made the cop seems like like a very friendly kid should enjoy because there's this dog with him. We love dogs, too. I'm very drawn in by dogs. And then there are police dogs that make me think I should be excited when I am not excited when I see police. The reality of police dogs is a crushing part of propaganda for me. And then the other thing is sometimes a disappointment I have when a show I really like becomes a cop drama accidentally. So I just had this experience with the new Apple TV show Silo. The premise is sort of a sci-fi, futuristic. There's some kind of we don't know yet, like an uprising that happened. 
And at the end of this uprising, they end up in the silo. And as part of the new sort of confederacy that's put together, there's all these rules about you can't know what happened before the uprising. No artifacts from pre-uprising are allowed. You have to turn them over. There's this video that's outside that's saying, hey, it's actually not safe for us to be outside. And then they were sort of introduced this idea that that might be a lie and that actually it might be completely viable to live outside. And so that's part of the first, maybe three episodes are exploring that. I'm very interested in that idea, this idea about like, you know, how a society organizes itself in the industrial collapse. I'm compelled by apocalypse kind of media. And then after about episode two or three, it becomes a cop show. It centers on the sheriff of the town, and then it becomes the new sheriff investigating crimes inside the silo. And I was like, oh, I was loving how we organized our society. And is the government lying to us about what's safe in the world? What a transformative vision that we could be exploring. And then now we're just investigating crimes in the silo. Propaganda just gets infused into what was actually the premise that could have been a really compelling idea that just becomes a cop show. And what a bummer. Yeah, it makes me think of Only Murders in the Building. I don't know if you watched any of that show because I did start the silo, but I didn't get very far. I might have actually watched the first three episodes and the transition into the cop drama. And then I sort of dropped off. I actually kind of forgot about it. Now I'm like, hmm. The <laughs> but um, Only Murders in the Building is an interesting thing because they are investigating only murders that happen in their building. And there is a moment where they start interacting with law enforcement, but it's not in cahoots. They're actually working sort of, you know, parallel, but also in spite of the law enforcement intervention or their attempt to, because of course they also get framed and like the whole thing starts happening. But it is interesting to see the difference between like a show that has cops in it and centers the community responding to a crime, a crime, again, we're using that language very loosely, (laughs) watching that response where the police are in the story, but they're not centered in the story versus other shows where they're very much centralized in being the people who resolve the problem, issue, crime, violence, whatever happens in the show. We do not know why we are here. We do not know who built the silo and why we are underground. We only know the world outside our sanctuary is death. If you boil the pact down to one rule, it's do not say you want to go outside. Or you will go outside. What are some of the ways that you think about disrupting propaganda, or how do we take this critique or this understanding of propaganda into our lives, into our communities? How do we actually like wrestle with this in the real world? Okay, so I just remembered something I forgot I wanted to say earlier. <laughs> so I refuse to answer your question right now. <laughs> just thinking about the other spaces of disappointment because you had named like the uh, dogs. Yes. Agree. And also neighborhood watch groups are a space of disappointment for me. We have two neighborhood watch groups um, in our neighborhood. One that splintered off because of the racism and sort of violent dehumanization in the ways that people talked about potential crime in the neighborhood, calling people animals, calling people, you you, listen, you know, you probably are in a neighborhood group. (laughs) We know what happens. So this one splintered off and I had hope that, you know, I was sending them Audre Lorde safe outside information and like, you know, like really trying to support them in thinking about community safety in a different way during COVID, the biggest complaint in our neighborhood. And I just want everyone who's listening, everyone, just everyone, the biggest complaint in our neighborhood, hold on to your butts. I hope this is, I hope you're okay. Like you're, you may not make it through this, but it was the fireworks that were going off constantly during COVID. And when I tell you that our neighborhood 
was in a tizzy girl. They were very upset, not just about the fireworks, but they were also upset about the trash that was left behind in the park from the fireworks. I just want to remind everybody that this was during a global pandemic where we were also experiencing massive civil unrest related to anti-Black violence enacted by law enforcement. My neighborhood was up in arms about these fucking fireworks. Like just every day, someone was posting a picture of trash left behind in the neighborhood. Someone was saying, oh my God, it's happening again tonight. It was ridiculous. What I did is in this other neighborhood group, I actually wrote a template for a letter that essentially said, hey neighbor, my dog is really scared of fireworks, right? Like whatever the thing was, there were, and, and that's legitimate. Like there are many people who are triggered by fireworks. There are animals that are literally shitting their pants <laughs> because these fireworks are going off. We have a neighbor dog that is one of my closest friends dog that literally poops in our backyard because for some reason it has decided that our backyard is the safe place for that dog to go to the bathroom on fireworks days. They pick up the poop. Nobody worry. They always pick up the poop. Zora's bathroom is in our backyard. Yes. And the dog's name is Zora, um, named after Zora Neil Hurston. <laughs> so Zora poops in our yard, but I wrote a letter for them to use that was just like, Hey, if you are going to set off fireworks, would you mind scheduling it? Can we talk as a community? Because we know that law enforcement, even though y'all are calling the police every day um, to address this fireworks problem, does not have the capacity to police fireworks. And so maybe as a community, we can just decide that on the last Friday of the month, go fucking nuts. I just ask that you post to the group that you're going to do it. And then maybe maybe we can try to resolve this collectively because I too love fireworks. I love them. I know that not everybody does. I don't have a problem with fireworks. They don't bother me. I love them. I will go sit on my rooftop and I'm like, look at this free fireworks show we're getting. But I also don't have a dog that won't shit outside or that is scared and is shaking. I don't have a member of my family that's triggered by it. So I am the exception not the rule. And I think that collectively we could probably do some things where we could all go to the park one night. And we know that there are ordinances that say that we're not allowed to do that, but guess what? No one's following it anyway. So what is our, what is our strategy going to be? Right. And so all of this to say that that letter was never used and that these, the right, that no one was willing to talk to their neighbors because it's against the law. It's against the law, even though people are breaking the law all over the place, up and down the streets. I mean, we got mopeds running through the park, which again, I don't care. I think a kid riding a moped is probably not breaking into my car. I'm happy that they're on a moped. I feel like grass grows back. I would say many of our neighbors do not agree that grass grows back. So we have things that are happening that are already crimes. Why can't we just be creative so that we're addressing the community's concerns? Because people are not going to stop shooting off fireworks. And they have not. I mean, people had to go back to work, so it's less intense than it was. But people are still doing it in the summer uh, and shooting off fireworks. So that's just, that is an area of deep disappointment. And the other reason why it's disappointing is because even though law enforcement has a hand in approving these neighborhood watch groups, believe it or not, they do not police their behavior. So while the neighborhood group is out here being racist or calling the police, they're just happy to be called. They're not actually doing any type of intervention. And I know this for a fact because we asked them explicitly, who is in charge of making sure that these neighborhood watch groups are not being racist, discriminatory, violent? We do not want another George Zimmerman to come out of our neighborhood watch. And people were threatening people with bats. So what are y'all going to do about it? And they're like, oh, no, no, no. All we do is establish them. We don't police whether they're going to do these awful things, which I was like, I don't know why that was surprising. It shouldn't have been surprising. And I guess surprise is not even really the word. Isn't that on brand for law enforcement to establish a rule that they don't have capacity to actually support or resource? And then they just let it go until a crime happens that they can prosecute and then they respond. So that's my disappointment 
in propaganda uh, and how it shows up in my neighborhood and my lived experience. Because literally one of the texts that went out early on in in COVID, no, I think this was pre-COVID, one of my neighbors posted in the group that there are three Black children in the alley with backpacks. That was the entire post. And just so you know, the alleyway, it's not an alley. Like I know, like when you say alley, I think of alleys in SVU. (laughs) I'm not talking about a dead end alley where there's like, you know, a scary vibe. This is basically uh, just another access point into our neighborhood. It's another person's driveway that's just a little more secluded. The way that they talk about these strips of roadway in our neighborhood is as if it is an alleyway where all of this crime and violence is happening. So I just want to be clear while I'm talking about this, that 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 is not the alley. That is not the definition of the alley that I am talking about. (laughs) That's my disappointment for today. (laughs) Nothing makes me feel more pessimistic about the transformative future I'm trying to imagine than watching the conversations in my neighborhood Facebook group about where people throw away their dog poop. I get very distressed that that seems like an easy problem to solve. And if we are all out name calling and in deep distress, or at least appearing deep distress about whether my neighbor is throwing their poop away in my trash can at the curb, we have a really long way to go before we're going to end prisons and policing. Y'all, this seems solvable. And I also can't turn away where I'm like, okay, it's the monthly fight about whether or not someone threw their dog poop away in your trash can. It's so human. It's so human to have this experience of like, well, no, it's my trash can. Like, well, actually it's the municipal trash can that you pay to rent, but sure. It's the trash can that you pay for. That's for sure. Maybe I can end on a more positive note. If we cannot figure out generative conflict in these low stake things about where you throw your dog poop away, we have a big task when we're doing grievous harm to each other. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That is definitely how I feel about it too, where I'm just like, I don't know. I feel like that sort of relinquishment of our responsibility, just like we were talking about being like someone else is going to handle something definitely trickles down and covers so many things which is another reason that propaganda is dangerous because if we can give someone else responsibility to respond, then we actually don't have to invest in our community. And part of the reason that the fireworks situation annoyed me was because we already know that everyone, not for nothing, even law enforcement during the global pandemic, everyone is operating with limited capacity and resources. You're calling on law enforcement, you're calling on your neighbors, not to participate in a solution, but to just name and get everybody riled up when the park is, you could just walk down there with a broom. You could join them. We have a team in our community, it's called the Peace Team, and they do a lot of trainings around nonviolent interventions and things like that. So I also organized for the community. I was like, hey, uh, another option would be that we do things in the park at these times that makes it a little less accessible for these things to happen. Or we're just there to encourage people to clean up. Like we provide the trash can. It does take labor, you guys. Like, I know that it takes work, but you know what else is sapping the emotional intelligence out of the world right now and our emotional energy? It's all of your complaining. All it does is rile people up. Everybody's mad and it creates all this energy around the thing that isn't helping. So maybe let's just lean into our best nature and either practice the fine art of shutting the fuck up. Or let's come together and be creative and imaginative rather than just being like there's a single solution. The solution is to call the cops and hope that they will police this thing that we know they don't have capacity to police. 
there's a show cold case that I was into for a period of time. And I think the thing that draws me into those types of shows is really about how it connects to our historical context. So I think that's why that show Cold Case got me because it took us through like incidents where people were being put into mental institutes. Like there were all these historical components to it. And I think for me, when I'm looking at true crime or copaganda shows or cop dramas, the part that draws me in is thinking through why this thing is happening, why it's being policed this way. How did people end up in a situation where this crime or this violence was possible? I think that's what draws me in because it's also the mystery. Like everything that I'm interested in is, is the mystery of it is like, why did this happen? I want to know why it happened. I want to know who was involved, what went wrong. Like for something, there's something about it for me where I see it's almost like doing a case review where I'm like, I, I want to get into the weeds and find out that kind of stuff. Because even though I know much, like there's some stuff that's fictional, obviously I was talking about America's Most Wanted and, and these other things that are, are less fictional, even if they are propaganda. Um, but for me, it gives me like these little windows of opportunity to think about responding differently. And to think about the systems that fail long before something really violent that is harder to respond to happens. And so when I'm thinking about spaces of intervention to disrupt propaganda or help my community see it more readily, when we're in moments where we're challenging law enforcement, I think about how the Lansing Police Department put out a PDF and it was called, it was on their transparency page. And it was by the numbers, what they were responding to. And it was like, we responded to 400 car accidents this year, three of these things. And and so I, I went through the entire document going into a city council meeting and I did the math on which of the incidents were actual violent crime that they were intervening on and how many calls were related to things that outside organizations, community safety type things that didn't require a law enforcement, like armed response, you know, even though we would, we could argue some of the violent ones didn't need that either, but like just for a baseline. And it was a huge number. I can't remember what it was because guess what? They deleted it off their website, never to be found again after I was using it so effectively to be like, yeah, we don't need the cops called into our neighborhood for a noise ordinance. There are things that you all are making the case to expand your budget through this document that actually is unnecessary. And so I think when I imagine how community can intervene and disrupt on propaganda, I think about how we need to be so good at looking at the information that they're giving us and really having a critical eye in pulling that apart and understanding what are they actually presenting to us. Because when our chief of police said that there are 3,000 calls, I'm I'm making up that number, I don't remember what he said, but 3,000 calls on fireworks and we needed to respond to all of them. And that's why we need a larger budget. I'm sorry, you're going to have to work a little harder to convince me that fireworks are worthy of the money that you have in your budget. And we also need to have a better memory of how it has been policed in the past, right? If pre-COVID, you were not able to prevent people from shooting off fireworks, and again, this is a very small example, then you're... What makes you think that suddenly with an additional budget, are you just going to sit in our park? Like, do we really want a cop sitting there? But wouldn't we want to maybe prioritize some things that actually do create public safety? If we're not going to abolish the police in the next three to five years, then what are some harm reduction things that we can do, which of course comes down to limiting their budget, limiting their power and things like that. But let's also just get fucking real about the fact that the things that they're doing are not working. 
talking to my sister and I was like, you know, anytime you talk about abolition, the first thing people want to know is how you're going to deal with the rapists and the murderers. And my sister looked at me and she was like, can we talk about what we're doing with them now? And I was like, exactly. As an abolitionist, I do not feel responsible to have a perfect solution because we are currently living in a situation where our government does not, is not required to have a perfect solution. So if they're not required to have a perfect solution, then I think we can be a little more patient with ourselves in the ways that we are creative and the ways that we experiment and explore what ways that we can be safe without law enforcement being at the center of the story. Repeat after me. All cops are bastards. 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 All, all cops, all cops are bastards. All cops are bastards. All cops are bastards. To support Propaganda, please like, subscribe, and leave a five-star review. It really makes a difference.